Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. When Stott speaks, he has a voice that is friendly, courteous, and natural. It is humble and self-critical, but also confident, joyful, and optimistic. Stott says that the central message of the gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the human, divine figure. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on a church immersed in secularity. come today to the third essential in evangelism, which I've called a church immersed in secularity, immersed in secular society. Because even when Jesus Christ has uh, unbolted and opened the doors of opportunity, and the church has a message that is true and contemporary, still it cannot evangelize unless there are people who are prepared to listen to it. It's no good having a door to go through and a message to preach if nobody's listening. And so the church must be in such close, personal, human contact with the secular, the non-Christian world that there are people whose ears and hearts and minds are open and who are prepared to listen. So our subject today is the age-old question of the church in the world or the church in the world a church immersed in secularity. A church, that is to say, that is not insulated from non-Christian society, but is penetrating it and is immersed within it. So let me ask you to look at my text, and if you take the Bible in front of you, turn in the New Testament to page 106. The great prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17. And I would like to read to you a few verses that refer to the world. And by the world is not now meant the whole of the earth, the globe, the planet earth. What is meant by the world here is what we call secular society, non-Christian society, that community that is not the kingdom of God but the kingdom of Satan because it doesn't recognize the lordship and the kingdom of God. That is what is meant by the world. Now, listen or follow with me, if you will, some of these verses. Six. I've manifested your name to the men that you have given me out of the world. Verse nine, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, for secular society, but for those whom you have given me, that is given to me out of the world. Verse 11, now I am no more in the world. I have been, I've been moving freely in secular society, but I'm no more in the world. But these are in the world, living in the midst of secularism. Verse 14, I've given them thy word, and the world, secularism, has hated them, because they don't belong to it. They are not secular themselves. They're immersed in secularity, but their thoughts and their standards and their convictions are not secular. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. They don't belong to secularism, even as I don't. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 18, as you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see then that the whole of this central section of our Lord's Prayer concerns the relation between the church and the world. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus gives the church here three fundamentals. And the first gift, if you like, that he gives to the church is a description of of itself. He gives the church a description of itself, a specification of itself. He gives to his people a description of what they are. He describes to them their own identity. Now this is essential because the church can never fulfill its mission until it has grasped its identity. As with individuals, so with the church, we have to know ourselves before we can understand the task to which God calls us. So in verses 6 to the beginning of verse 11, Jesus gives an elaborate description of the church. Verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and the beginning of 11, although they're in the middle of a prayer, they contain no prayer. There are a description of the church that he is about to pray for. But before he prays for the church, he describes the church. And his prayer is the church may retain its identity. So he has to define its identity before he can pray that it will retain its identity. His great prayer is, Father, keep them, keep them, keep them. Keep them what they are. Enable them to remain true to their identity. So he describes what their identity is. What is it? Well, the church is a community within a community. Jesus refers to two communities, the wider community that we call secularity, the godless world, and within that wider community, those whom you have given to me, says Jesus, out of the world. The church is a community within a community, a Christian community in a secular community, and it has two main characteristics. The first is it's been given to Christ out of the world. So that in one sense it's been taken out of the world and given to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has revealed the Father to this Christian community so that he says several times, they know the Father. The Christ has revealed the Father to them. And this is the first thing about the church. They know the Father. They belong to Christ. And the second characteristic is they continue to live in the world out of which they've been taken. They've been taken out of the world in one sense and given to Christ and shown the Father, but in another sense they remain in this world out of which they've been taken. Look again at verse 11. I am no more in the world. Jesus was about to return to heaven. He was going to leave this secular godless world. But he says, although I am no longer in the world, they are in the world. I'm leaving them behind. They are to remain in it, part of it, 
while distinct from it because they know the Father and belong to the Son. So that is the church. The church is spiritually distinct but not socially segregated. It is a Christian community within a secular community and immersed in secularism, or should be, so that, as is often said today, it is both holy and worldly in the right sense at the same time. It's holy because it belongs to God. It's worldly in the sense that it is immersed in the world. So Christ prays, Father, keep them. This is what they are. Keep them. Keep them distinct from the world. Keep them living in the world. Enable them to retain their identity. And yet the church has constantly forgotten one or other aspect of its double identity. Now withdrawing from the world into a cosy, comfy, sheltered insulation. And now so immersed in the world that it becomes assimilated to the world and loses its Christian distinctness. But the double identity of the church is to be distinct because it belongs to Christ and it knows the Father and it has convictions and standards of its own while at the same time immersed in the secular community. So that's the first thing Jesus gives the church, a description, a self-specification, an identity. And secondly, Jesus gives the church a commission. Look on to verse 18. As thou didst send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That is a mission, that is a commission to be sent into the world. Now, if you've been following me so far, I hope that already uh, you are surprised. That is, is it not exceedingly surprising that a church that lives in the world, that Jesus has described these are in the world, should yet need to be sent into the world? How can you be sent into a place where you already are? And I think you will know the answer to the question. It is perfectly possible for Christian people who know God and yet live in a godless community to fail to put one and one together and make them two. But if we are a godly community in a godless world, does there not place upon us an inescapable responsibility to share the knowledge of God with those who do not share it? The, this double identity of the church places upon it a responsibility for mission, to be sent into the world in which it lives with a message of the knowledge of God. And it's only if the church is aware of being sent on this mission into the secular world that it will avoid both mistakes. How can the church withdraw from the world if it has been sent into the world on a mission? How can the church conform to the world and become assimilated to the world if it is to retain the integrity of its message, let alone its own integrity, 
withdrawal and conformity, the two mistakes, are both impossible if the church is engaged in mission in the world. For to withdraw from the world is to deny our mission by losing contact with the very people to whom we're sent, while to conform to the world is to deny our mission by losing the message that we've been sent into the world to take, a commission. Now, thirdly, Jesus gives the church a model. Verse 18 again. As the Father has sent me into the world, so, or as thou hast sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's not just a commission to go, it is a model to describe how we are to go. We are to go into the world as Jesus himself came into the world, and his mission is to be the model for the church's mission. And Jesus himself, during his earthly life, was wonderfully loyal, both to the world in which he lived and to the Father to whom he belonged. He never denied the Father by by becoming assimilated to the world. But equally, he never denied the world by a false pietistic devotion to the Father. And this double devotion to the world in which he lived and to the Father to whom he belonged is very evident at every stage in our Lord's career. Take his birth. He was born into the world. Jesus, when he came to the world, didn't descend by parachute. He didn't arrive in a spaceship as an alien in an alien land. He was born into the world. He assumed our humanity And he identified himself with our humanity without losing his divinity. So it was an identification without a loss of identity. It was clear in his birth. It was clear in his life, in his ministry. He fraternized with publicans and sinners. He was the friend of dropouts in the wider community but without losing his own purity. And it's even more plain when he died, for in death he was made sin for us. He could not have identified himself with sinful and guilty humanity more than he did by taking upon himself our sin and our guilt without ever losing his own sinlessness. He was sinless but he was made sin with our sins. And at each stage, he identified himself with us without losing his own identity. A perfect model for the church. Now, we are to follow his example. We are to immerse ourselves in secular society. We are to become one with people in their need without losing our distinct Christian identity as the people who know God and belong to Christ. Now, I want to spend the rest of my time, a few more minutes, in trying to indicate the practical outworkings of these principles. What are the implications? Supposing the Christian church accepts Christ's description of it, that it is a community within a community that knows God, belongs to Christ, and lives in the world. Supposing we accept that specification, 
Supposing we obey the commission, which is to go into the world and identify with the world and serve it. Supposing we seek to follow Christ's example in this matter, what effect will this have upon us as individuals or as a church? Now, these are tremendously important questions today because you know as well as I that in Britain at least there is a disastrous divorce between the church and secularism. The impact of the Christian church on secular society in Britain today is minimal. While secular society largely ignores the church as a total irrelevance, as a museum piece, whose proper place, if not in a museum, is in an antique shop. And this is the attitude of the great majority of our fellow citizens, and we have no illusion about this, a divorce between the church and the world. I want then to suggest to you, for your own thinking and for all our obedience, that there will be at least three marks of a church immersed in secularism. And the first is service. A church that is immersed in secular society is serving the secular society in which it is immersed. Jesus said he hadn't come to be served. He had come to serve and to give. So he healed the sick and he fed the hungry and he comforted the sad and he gave himself in service and his service was not in the church. It was in the world where it was needed. Now, are we not immediately aware of a difference between the ministry of Jesus and our ministry today? For too long we've given the impression that service, the service that really keen Christians will give, will be in the church. So we give them what we call church work to do. Work that is organized by the church, in the church, for the church. Fine, it's all necessary. It has to be done, or at least some of it has to be done. Some of it isn't necessary, but that's not really my subject. But we sometimes so organize the church's program as to keep our church members out of the world. There are some churches that organize their program so efficiently so that there is something for their members to do every solitary night of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, to keep their members evidently out of mischief and to keep them insulated from the secular world in which they ought to be immersed. And as a result, our members become ecclesiasticized, if you'll forgive the word. And there are no more ecclesiasticized human beings than clergy. Ecclesiasticized, insulated from the secular world. And so we appear to other people to be a race apart. Oh, not now in our moral standards, which are distinct or should be. Not either in our spiritual experience and our relation to God and our belonging to Christ. We are distinct in those ways. But we appear to people to be a race apart in other ways. We don't seem to be human beings. We're different in our interests, in our culture, in our activities. And we've created a kind of ecclesiastical life that is parallel to and outside of, instead of inside, the secular world. 
and we've cut ourselves off from the very world in which, according to Jesus, we are supposed to be immersed. I wonder how many of you know a very beautiful little early Christian letter that was published round about the beginning of the second century AD called the Epistle to Diognetus. <clears throat> but let me quote a few things from it because it is so beautifully worded. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind by country or by speech or by customs. They do not dwell in cities of their own, you see, insulated from the rest of the world. They do not use a different language or practice a peculiar life. But while they dwell in Greek cities or in barbarian cities, according as each man's lot was cast, and follow the customs of the land in clothing and food and other matters of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and beyond all expectation. They live in countries of their own, but simply as sojourners. They share the life of citizens, and yet they endure the lot of foreigners. Every foreign land to them is a fatherland, and every fatherland a foreign land. They marry like the rest of the world, they beget children, but they do not cast their offspring adrift, that is, they don't abandon children, as was widely done in the Roman world. They spend their existence upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives they surpass the laws, and so on. In one word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Again, in it, but not of it. Now, we need more Christians, don't we, who take this seriously, who work in secular business rather than in Christian offices, and who struggle to discover what it means to serve Christ in a secular job among secular men and women. We need more Christians who use their homes to reach out for Jesus Christ into the secular neighborhood because their Christian home is a little Christian community in this secularism. And these secular people around love to come into it because it's part of their community. And Christians who undertake public service, not just in the church, but in the community, in the local hospital or the local library, or the local community center, among immigrants or children or, or youth or deprived people or old-age pensioners, serving, immersed in the secular community. Not as a means to an end, not because we know that our evangelism will lack credibility unless we are involved in service, but because this service is an end in itself. It is service in its own right as the demand that Christ places upon his people to give themselves in love and in the service that love entails. Service is the first mark of a church immersed in secularity. More briefly, the second is sensitivity. And especially in personal evangelism. Now, we are not to neglect an opportunity to witness to strangers that we happen to meet but it's much more natural and it's much more costly to witness to friends. And friendship 
with secular people is the natural context within which to share the good news of Jesus. And if we do that, we shall renounce all wooden stereotypes in evangelism. We cannot possibly share the gospel with everybody in exactly the same way in a wooden stereotype as if God had mass-produced human beings and everyone was a precise replica of the rest. When every human being is different and has different problems and different hang-ups, and unless we're totally lacking in sensitivity, we cannot use stereotypes. Instead, we seek to meet people where they are, present the gospel to them, the good news of Jesus, in a fashion that is appropriate to who and what they are. And in this presentation, the sharing of the good news with a friend, a neighbor, a relative, a colleague, whoever it may be, there is a place for dialogue and not just monologue. Monologue is when one person is talking, as I am now. Dialogue is, of course, a conversation. And there are some evangelical Christians who think that all dialogue is inappropriate in evangelism. It's nothing of the kind. Provided you understand the purpose of dialogue as a means to evangelism. And that is to listen in order to understand. That is why we need to listen to the person. We can't just go on spouting to the person whom we don't understand. We don't know what their particular need is. We have to listen until we understand their hang-up and listen and listen and listen prayerfully, sensitively, lovingly in order to share Jesus with them in a, an appropriate way. Uh, Canon Max Warren has put this, I think, better than any uh, other quotation I know. He says, dialogue is not evangelism. Properly speaking, it is not even pre-evangelism. It is an activity in its own right. It is in its very essence an attempt at mutual listening, listening in order to understand. Understanding is its reward. And I'm thankful in the Lausanne Covenant that there was included the phrase, our Christian presence in the world, in secularism, is indispensable to evangelism. And so is that kind of dialogue whose purpose is to listen sensitively in order to understand. Service, sensitivity, and the third implication is suffering. Jesus came to serve, and because he served, he suffered. Jesus was the suffering servant of the Lord and of mankind. And in the servant songs in the book of Isaiah that shadowly uh, depict the Messiah, Jesus who was to come, suffering and service belong together. And Jesus says the same thing here. He says in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. They're in the world, they're not of it. They're a community within a community, a distinct community that is immersed in secularity and wherever they go, well, some people are embarrassed by their presence because they won't compromise. Some people are made ashamed of their own self-centeredness and their godlessness 
by a godly and an unselfish and a loving life that is lived out in their midst. And the antagonism of secularity is provoked by an uncompromising Christian who is immersed in the secular world. If I may give you one more quotation before I conclude, Douglas Webster has again uh, caught on to this and expressed it admirably when he says, Mission, sooner or later, leads into passion, using passion in its old English sense of suffering. In biblical categories, the servant must suffer. Passion is not only the result, but in some sense the climax of mission. It is that which makes mission effective. Every form of mission leads to some form of cross. The very shape of mission is cruciform. We can understand mission only in terms of the cross. So there is a call to suffer. And that means that evangelical Christians have to renounce evangelical triumphalism. That uh, success syndrome. That uh, insistence that everything we do has got to succeed. Why? Jesus was despised and rejected of men. He said that his servant, the servant, is not above his master. And the disciple is not above his Lord. Success is not a necessary uh, characteristic of Christian work in secularism. Sometimes it is suffering rather than success. So I conclude then with these three characteristics of a church. If it is really immersed in secularism, if, if it is not insulated in some kind of evangelical monasticism, and its marks are service, and sensitivity and suffering. And this is an essential in evangelism. There can be no true evangelism unless the church is immersed in secular society. So I quote one other phrase from the Lausanne Covenant, and that is this. We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him. And that this calls for a similar deep and costly penetration of the world. We need to break out of our ecclesiastical ghettos and permeate non-Christian society. And I pray that all of us, and I very much include myself, will take this call of Jesus seriously and make conscientious efforts as individuals and as a local church to penetrate hitherto impenetrable sections of society to identify with the world without ever losing our distinct Christian identity. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask you to look in mercy upon us as we're gathered as a Christian community for worship this morning. Here we are in a beautiful church insulated from the world. And we want to remind ourselves and each other in your presence that we've gathered together this morning only in order to scatter. We've gathered to meet you in order to renew our strength, to scatter back into the world, into secularity, as your witnesses and your servants. We want to ask your forgiveness that so often we do live an insulated, isolated 
life. Help us to take seriously this call and learn what it means to be what the Lord Jesus was in the world while not of it. Hear our prayer for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.